Would you please join with me in a word of prayer? Well, Heavenly Father, I thank you for this Easter season and these accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. Lord, they're so encouraging, and there's so much historical proof here. I pray that you would help each one of us trust the eyewitnesses of those apostles and the authors of Scripture. And I ask you to help me as the preacher now, that I would be clear and true, and that it would be useful to your work. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Our lives are full of things that need tending, that need maintenance, that need care. For example, this time of year, I'm always looking out the window at my garden and feel somewhat inspired to work in the yard. If you neglect your garden, weeds grow, things become overgrown, things that need fertilizer are neglected, and the yard starts to look bad. If you spend time investing in it, it looks good. It needs to be tended. Likewise, your physical body, your muscles, need to have care. If you don't use them, they actually atrophy and get weak. I was complaining about some minor back pain to somebody in our church that's a physical therapist, and she said, well, how's your core strength? Are you doing sit-ups? Are you doing exercises? And I had to admit I wasn't. And so she said, 100 leg lifts every day for your stomach and some Superman exercises where you go like this on the floor for your lower back, that'll be really good. So I started doing it, and the pain went away. Now, it doesn't solve every back pain, but in my case, it helped. And the point is that your muscles need to be exercised to be strong, and if they're neglected, they get weak. They're not static. They're changing. Same thing with your relationships. If you spend time with someone and invest in them and ask questions about them and have common experiences together, your affection for one another and your affinity for one another will grow. If you don't call them, if you don't make plans, if you never see them, the relationship grows cold, and you or the other person will start to think it doesn't matter. The relationship will start to get weak. It needs to be tended. And engines, any of you that have a a combustion engine, it'll work for a while with no maintenance, and then eventually it'll start to get rough, and then the engine will break. Or you put oil in it, and you follow the schedule, and you start to care for it, and it will serve you a long, long time. Well, I give you those examples, and you could probably come up with several others on your own, because faith is just like that. It is not static. Faith is dynamic. It is either increasing and getting stronger, or it is getting weaker, like a muscle, atrophying. It is dying down. So I want to talk to you today about that topic, faith. And I want to ask this question. Think back over the last seven days since Easter Sunday about some of the things you've done. Did those things increase your faith and strengthen it Or did they weaken it and pull you away from God? For instance, things that would help strengthen it would be coming to morning prayer. A bunch of us get together at 9 o'clock. We pray for the church every weekday. You're welcome to join us if you'd like. We're in here at 9 o'clock in the transept over there, and we pray for the prayer requests. People are in small groups where they get together in, you know, 6 to 10 or 12 people, and they look at God's Word together and pray. People are having quiet times, which is what we call first thing in the morning, get your cup of coffee, get your Bible, and go read some scripture and talk to God about your day. Start the day off by setting God central in your life. It's called a quiet time. Worship on Sunday morning, especially on Easter morning, is a great way to strengthen your faith. Serving others, loving those around you, 
looking not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. That strengthens your faith. Love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus said. Or when temptation comes into your life, to not just succumb to it, but to actually wrestle with it and go, God, I'm feeling really strong desire to do this thing, which is not good for me. I know in my mind, your kingdom says this, your word says this, but I want that. And regardless of whether or not you pass that particular test, just bringing God into it through prayer is a strengthening and an exercising of faith. These and other things you can do to exercise your faith. I could go through a similar list of things that would pull you away from God, but I'm going to spare you that. I'll let you think about things that you did or can do that would hurt your faith and cause it to get weaker. But our series that started last week is about seeking Jesus. You are seeking Jesus. That was what the angel said to the women at the, at the Easter morning tomb experience. You're seeking Jesus. And over the next six weeks, we're going to talk about some nuanced ways that we seek him. And today we're going to look at the idea of you are seeking proof. We're going to look at the Doubting Thomas story. You are seeking proof. And Jesus, in that account with Thomas, said something that supports what I'm suggesting about faith being dynamic and not just staying fixed. It's not static. When Thomas was finally confronted by Jesus, the literal grammar in the Greek would sound like this if you translated it in a real wooden way. Stop becoming disbelieving and become believing. That's what he says to Thomas. Thomas, your attitude, your need for even more proof and signs and wonders, your demand that you put your fingers in the nail holes, that is causing you to become weaker in faith. You are becoming disbelieving. Stop it. Choose to exercise your faith and become believing. He puts that to Thomas. And so I ask a question, what is necessary for faith? What do you need to believe? With no apologies whatsoever to secular society, seeing is not believing. People say that all the time. Ah, seeing is believing. No, it's not. People see all sorts of stuff and choose not to believe. The scriptures are full of all the ways that the disciples and others saw evidence of the kingdom of God and hardened their hearts and did not believe it and even put the Son of God to death. So last week, Easter Sunday morning, we looked at the fact that Jesus gave a ton of warnings. He said, here's what's going to happen. Be ready for it. The Son of Man is going to be handed over. He'll be crucified and on the third day rise. He said this over and over again. And when it happened, according to his word and according to the prophets, they were still so slow of heart to understand and full of doubt. And they were expecting the wrong thing at the tomb. Their expectations were dull. Now, some doubting is normal for all Christians. That's a normal part of walking with the Lord. But there's a difference in having some doubts and questions and having a hardened heart and refusing to believe the clear evidence. So our text picks up in John chapter 20, verse 19, on the night of Easter. So the morning happens, and then Jesus appears to some of, but not all, of the disciples. Judas has already gone out and betrayed Jesus and has abandoned the faith. And Thomas, for some reason, is not there. It says, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, I guess Thomas had a twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And every year I read this, and every year I think of John Stott's comment that it's a calculated risk to skip church. You don't know what the Lord might do in worship on that particular Sunday. Some days angels have descended and been present in this place with us. Sometimes something from the scripture or the Eucharist will straight from the Holy Spirit go to your heart and minister to your need. And other times you don't necessarily feel it, but it's good to be here. But you never know when that's going to happen. 
And so it's a calculated risk to skip church. Thomas missed Easter night's gathering. And others were there. And so when they finally caught back up with Thomas, they said, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. Now, they must have described to him what the resurrected body of Jesus looked like because he knew that there were nail marks in his hands or in his wrists that I guess were indentations enough that you could put your finger into it. And he opened up and showed them where the spear went between his ribs, you could put your hand in it. I don't know exactly what that looks like. We'll get to see it one day. But they described it to him. And you know what Thomas's reaction was? He said, with strong emphasis, I will never believe unless I can put my finger in there and stick my hand in there. I will never believe, says Thomas. And he defined what he thought he needed for faith. And thus, he's been dubbed Doubting Thomas because of this, this little episode. See, it's not that Thomas wants proof. It's that Thomas wants more proof than what he's already got. At the last two verses of this gospel, it says that all these signs that John is recording have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and by believing have life in his name. Keep in mind that Thomas, one of the 12, was there for all seven of the signs. And real quickly, I'll just tell you what they are. He turned water into wine in front of their eyes. Thomas was there and saw it. He healed a man who had fever remotely, just did it, said, it's done, he's healed, and the guy got better. He healed a man who was a cripple, and he got up and he walked away. He fed 5,000 people with merely a couple of loaves and a couple of fish. He walked on water across a stormy lake out to a boat that they were in, and they were terrified. Thomas was in the boat. He healed a man who had been born blind, and no one had ever seen this happen. Guy was like 38 years old, been blind from the time he came out of the womb, had never seen, didn't know what colors looked like, and Jesus healed that man, and it was such an upsetting thing that all of John chapter 9 deals with it. It was so powerful and moving. And then, well, I would call the second to greatest signs, the greatest being the resurrection itself, was Lazarus being raised out of the tomb after four days. Thomas had said, when Jesus said, let's go back down to Judea, to Bethany, where, where they, they were, Thomas said, the Jews were trying to kill you there, and you're going to go back there? And he says, fine, let's go with Jesus, and we'll die with him. So Thomas was there when four days after being in the tomb, he said, roll the stone away, and he commanded Lazarus to come out, and he came out in a very powerful, dramatic way, wrapped up like a mummy, and so many people saw it that the Jews decided, not only do we have to kill Jesus, we have to kill Lazarus as well, because so many people are coming to faith. Thomas saw all of that. Is seeing believing? Not always, clearly not. He wanted to touch as well. Now, you know, <laughs> um, when he does actually find Jesus condescend to his request, eight days later, he jumps ahead of the class. Because if you read what the first disciples say when they see the resurrected Jesus the first time, it says they were overjoyed. They were full of joy. Oh, great, our friend Jesus is back. This is incredible, which is an inadequate response. Thomas jumps ahead of the class by having the correct response. Jesus shows up and says, Thomas, see? Come on, put your finger here. Touch my side. See where this is. Stop becoming disbelieving and become believing. And then Thomas, it, it doesn't say that he reached out and like touched the wound marks. It says he immediately declared, my Lord and my God. It's the most 
clear description of the divinity of Jesus in John's gospel. And keep in mind, unlike angels and others that were humans are tempted to worship, Jesus doesn't go, no, no, Thomas, you misunderstand. I'm just a created being like you. Don't worship me. Worship God alone. He does not do that because he is God, and he receives the worship of Thomas. But then he doesn't actually commend him and say, well, good job. All right, you got it right. I am the Lord and God. Good job, Thomas. No, he says, Thomas, have you believed because you've seen? Blessed, he gives a beatitude, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Well, who's that? It's us. It's you. If you're a Christian, you've not seen Jesus. I've never seen him. Not bodily. I've never, I, don't know, I don't know what his face looks like. I don't know what his features are. I don't know how tall he is. We'll get that answer eventually, but we've not seen, and yet we believed if you're a Christian. In fact, um, in the, later in the, in the early church, first, in 1 Peter, Peter tells the Christians that were being persecuted, he reminds them, he says, this is uh, 1 Peter 1, verses 4, and then verses 8, he says, you have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. And even though they're suffering some trials, he says this, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. Peter reminds them that their faith does not require further evidence. They believe without having to see Jesus. And the church for 2,000 years has grown steadily stronger. Don't believe what people say. The church is not dying. It is getting more and more numbers of people every single, frankly, every day and every year. It's getting bigger and bigger around the world. And that's because people are not seeing Jesus, but they're believing the historical proofs. And here's my main point today. The facts are enough for faith. You don't need to see Jesus. You don't need to touch his nail marks. You don't need to have some huge theophany where God comes down and does some miraculous sign in front of you. The historical facts are enough for faith. We are given in this book the eyewitness accounts of reputable witnesses of things that happened. So you don't need to see Jesus to trust him. The first church didn't see him, and 2,000 years later, we haven't seen him. The facts are enough for faith. I wonder, are they enough for you? Are you like Thomas, and I want God to do this list of things? If God would come down and do these things in my life, then I would believe. The bargaining kind of thing that we're tempted to do. I wonder if you're in that spot. Now, I told you last week on Easter that the burden of proof lies with the skeptic, not with the believer, because the empty tomb is so clearly and well attested to that you've got to come up, if you want to be an intellectually credible person, you've got to come up with a historical explanation of the tomb. Now, there are some really crazy things that people have suggested, and I'm going to tell you four of the better ones, but they're really bad. These are the best that people can come up with in 2,000 years, and they haven't toppled Christianity yet, and these are the best four excuses of what could have happened. One, the disciples stole the body. Well, there were Roman guards charged with the penalty of death if they fell asleep on duty at a, at a tomb that was sealed with some kind of a Roman seal. And if the disciples had stolen the body and propagated a lie, do you think that they would have all died as martyrs in violent deaths under threat of recanting? And when they wouldn't recant, 
they were killed, all but John, who was exiled on an island until he was an old man and died of natural causes. No, who dies for a lie? That doesn't make sense. Some say the authorities move the body. Well, that doesn't make sense either because Christianity was starting to spread because people were maintaining that Jesus was alive. They could have gone and gotten the body and paraded it around town and said, here's your savior. Doesn't he look impressive, this corpse? But they didn't do it because they didn't have the body. Some said they went to the wrong tomb. The women, it was early, it was dark, they were grieving, they were confused. They went to the wrong tomb and found an open tomb. Well, again, the same solution to the prior one. You just go find the body and you say, nope, here it is. And furthermore, Joseph of Arimathea paid money, expensive money for that tomb, and he put Jesus in it himself. He knew where the tomb was. They would have said, oh, you guys are in the wrong tomb. It's actually over here. Bring your spices over there. But that's not what happened. And my favorite is called the swoon theory. Jesus didn't fully die on the cross. He just kind of swooned and looked dead. And then they wrapped him up and they put him in this nice cool tomb. And then in there he resuscitated and came back out of the tomb. You saw the passion. You were here for Good Friday. You've read the story. They beat him so within an inch of his life that he almost didn't need to be crucified. He was so badly beaten. And then when he was crucified, they stuck a spear into his side. And then they wrapped him in 75 pounds of ointment and in a cloth and put him in a tomb that was dark with, with his face wrapped. It's kind of hard to breathe. And any zombie movies you've ever watched? You know, if he was able to come out of that and get out of that tomb, he would have looked like a zombie and been frightening. They would not have worshipped him as the glorious resurrected son of God. They would have been terrified because he would have been in immediate need of major medical care. If you've got a better excuse, I'd love to hear it, but those are the four top ones, and there are a few others that are even worse. But the burden of proof is on the skeptic because it happened. The tomb was empty. And so the best explanation of the historical evidence is that it actually happened as it's recorded in here. I had a 45-minute conversation with a man not long ago who went on and on and on about all the reasons why he's not a Christian and why Christianity is for people that just need an emotional crutch. And he didn't let me give any responses whatsoever. Now, I let him talk and just prayed silently for him. I'm trusting that the Lord will, in time, come to him with the gospel. I'm praying that would happen. But I read this book by Paul Little called Know Why You Believe. A million copies are out there. It's a great little book. And he had gone around to universities and talked to students about the faith and answered questions from the floor. They'd interrupt. He'd answer questions. He'd give a talk. And a young man came up to him at at a university and said to him, okay, I had lots of questions coming. You've answered every single one of them. And he said, well, are you going to become a Christian? And the man said, no. And he said, well, why not? And his answer was, it's kind of telling. He said, frankly, it'll mess up the way I'm living, which is an honest answer. It's not that it's intellectually a fool's religion. It's that it actually, if it happened, it's going to change your life. It means Jesus is actually Lord of everything, that he's in charge of the universe, that he's out moving in people's lives, and he actually has a claim to your life as well. Now, if you can dismiss Christianity on some, you know, loophole or some historical lack of evidence or whatever, then you don't have to worry about that because then Jesus isn't alive. But this man was honest. And I wonder about the other guy I talked to, too. It's not that it's a really good excuse. It's that you don't necessarily maybe want to deal with what the ramifications are. So notice that the beatitude comes, though. It's not 
sorry guys, the proof is Jesus is alive, and that means all fun is over, it's all prayer, it's no fun, it's going to be hard, and no, it's blessed are those who have not seen and believed. There's a number of things in here that speak about the blessedness of being a Christian. In this passage alone, he says, peace to you, not judgment on you guys for abandoning me. He doesn't come in with a rod and rebuke them. He says, peace to you three times. He's kind and he's extending grace, even in the midst of their doubt and their skepticism. And he says, he breathes on them. And I don't think this is just an enacted parable. I think the Holy Spirit actually came upon them and then was fanned into a fuller flame at the Pentecost event a couple weeks later. But if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit of God dwells in your heart. He empowers you to actually live the life of faith. He's always with you, so you're never alone. This is an encouragement. He's, he's ministering the love of God to your very heart about how valuable you are and how your forgiveness is real and that you're loved by God. And he says then, you are sent as witnesses. Can you believe that God would use your story of being a Christian to help another person eternally dwell forever with God? You're a witness of faith. When you exercise your faith and when you share even even a little bit of faith with somebody, and you say, I don't have all the answers. I just know, I believe, I trust, I, God is in my life. He's good to me, he loves me. He loves you too, you should consider it. Even just that is enough to push somebody over the edge for eternity to come and be a Christian. And God uses us for that. And he says, you have a message of forgiveness. Whatever you forgive, they are forgiven, and if you withhold sins, or if you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. Now that's been, interpreted a number of different ways, but definitely one of the things it means is that when you tell the gospel to someone, you say, like John 3, 16, everyone is standing in condemnation for their sins. They're already one foot in hell, so to speak, but God so loves you that he sent his son that if you believe in him, you will not perish, but you'll have everlasting life. And so simply by giving them the good news, you give them the opportunity to come to faith and you spare them from judgment. So in a sense, You're saying, hey, if you want to hang on to your sins and go and stand before a holy God in your own merit, it's not going to be enough. If you're willing to accept Jesus, he'll stand next to you and he'll say, all of his or her sins are covered. I paid for them on the cross. He'll intercede with the Father and you're forgiven and given the righteousness of Christ. And then finally, in verse 31, he says, these signs are written so that you might have life in his name by believing. This is a new kind of life, an abundant life, a good life a life with God where he's helping you become the kind of person you were always intended to be. You're made new. All of this is part of the blessedness. And the facts, the historical facts, are enough to have faith. The facts are enough for faith. Maybe we're seeking proof, but we don't need it. We have every bit we need here. So the question becomes, will you act on your faith? If you're a Christian, I want to say specifically, go to prayer increase prayer in your life. Even say, I don't know how to pray, God. That's a prayer, by the way. You can say, I know I should pray, but I don't want to pray. Help me want to want to pray. That's a prayer. And you can start to talk to him about this. And because the Holy Spirit lives within you, he will help you. You can exercise your faith and your faith will get stronger. Now, if you're a skeptic and you're not, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian yet, I want you to repent of your excuses. I want you to at least have the intellectual credibility to go and look at the empty tomb and decide which of the accounts you're going to believe, that they stole the body, that he resuscitated, 
that they got the wrong tomb or something else and decide if you're okay mentally with that. Because as Paul Little says, Christianity doesn't go against reason. It does call us to go beyond it, but not against it. It's not an unreasonable faith. It's not a fool's religion. And I want to invite you to actually consider your excuse and why you're making it. If you're willing to actually chase the facts down, the facts are all you need for faith. And I I invite you to open your heart and pray for God to come into your life. And he will. He'll change you and give you the life and all those blessings I talked about. So we're going to have a song, a sermon response song. I'm going to say a prayer. The song is called By Faith, and it's an invitation to that. And then we're going to go to a baptism, which is a tangible expression of faith. And as a prayer, I'm going to pray the collect that's actually appointed for this, the second Sunday of Easter, because it speaks to both things, I think. So let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, who in the Paschal mystery established the new covenant of reconciliation, grant that all who have been reborn into the fellowship of Christ's body may show forth in their lives what they profess by their faith. I ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I invite you to